Good evening. Hi, my name is Calm. Um, welcome. If I haven't introduced myself to you, uh, it's great to see you. Please come and chat to me at the end. I'd love to get to know you. Uh, before we dive back into that passage in Luke chapter 7, let's pray again. Let's wrap this service in prayer tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as Andy sent us to 2 Corinthians 4 at our prayer meeting this week, where it says, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servant for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Lord, would you take this weak, decaying vessel and would the light of Christ shine forth tonight? Lord, some of us come tired tonight. Some of us come confused or frustrated. Lord, would we humble ourselves and listen to what you might say to us. Thank you for your words. Thank you for preaching. Thank you for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do turn back in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Now, about five years ago, a new ferry launched uh, in Port Glasgow onto the Clyde. This was called the Glen Sanex, a long-awaited vessel to serve Scottish islanders, communities that desperately relied on a reliable ferry service that had been under strain for a number of years. And despite the delays, despite the setbacks, it had finally arrived. It was launch day. Or had it? Unfortunately for the island communities, this was a false dawn. This overdue launch was merely a publicity stunt. The boat looked pretty real. It was pretty big. It had lots of steel and all sorts going into it. But on closer inspection, this was far from the finished product. The ferry was more of an empty shell than a fully functioning ship. Without engines inside it, even the windows were painted on. Fast forward to today, and that boat still hasn't been finished. Those islanders are still waiting. Hopes dashed. I wonder if you've ever had your hopes raised only for them to fall in disappointment. It could be an online order. You've ordered something, you're excited about it, you know what was promised, you know what to expect. Maybe you felt the excitement as the postman came to your door. You rip open the package and instead of the iPhone that you ordered, you get some dog food. Shocking, I know, but that even happened this week. 
Of course, this, these kind of things can happen on a much larger scale as well. We, we seem to be wired searching for meaning and hope in our lives. And we do so because we, we know something inside of us tells us that this world is not how it ought to be. Delayed ferries, stolen property, even everyday occurrences remind us and make us look for a way to fix our world and our very selves, to try and restore things back to the way they ought to be, back before they were broken somehow. So we, we listen to those who, who promise a better world, a way to fix things, but no one seems to deliver. Promises fall flat. Results never seem to go far enough. Now, this feeling within ourselves, in our world, is nothing new. The, the Jews 2,000 years ago, the nation of Israel, were looking for a better world. God, the God of the universe, the one true God that we were hearing about this morning, had promised a rescuer that would rescue them from the, the hand of the empires that had kept them in exile for so many years. He would rescue them, but he would also be a light to all nations that all might be able to be rescued through him. And he would do this, God would do this by coming himself. Now, the prophets, there were lots of promises, prophets, all sketched a sort of an outline of what this future figure was going to be, this Son of God, this Son of Man. There would be a, a new Spirit-filled temple. There would be the Spirit poured out on God's people. He would bring healing and an end to suffering of the oppressed. He would reign as a king with peace in the land, with enemies judged. He would be holy and righteous and good. 400 plus years on from the nation's exile, under the oppression of the fourth kingdom that they were under, Rome, Jesus of Nazareth enters the stage and he's causing a stir. Is, is he the one? Is he really the one that I can put my hope in. And this matters for us tonight, because if God's promises are true, this coming one can bring me hope, can bring me restoration. Can I, I really, can I really trust Jesus? Or will he just be another disappointment? Not what I expected. We're going to look in our passage tonight, and it is a, um, a quirky passage, but we're going to try and work our way through it. We're going to look at two main pieces of evidence that Luke presents for us. And from this evidence, we are going to see how people react to Jesus. And it will cause us also to think about what we make of this evidence and how we might respond too. Okay? So, first of all, evidence number one, the curse of death is being undone. Evidence number one, the curse of death is being undone from verses 11 to 23. 
Now, we've just had last time, last week, Ben took us uh, with the Roman centurion that there was a healing, a great healing of Jesus, a servant who was on the point of death, and he uh, raised them back to uh, full health again. And the next day, as we start in our account, he takes the miracle up a notch. Now, the whole village of Nain is, is out, and they are, they are mourning the loss of a young boy. And they are, this death is felt across this community. They are there to support a woman who has already lost her husband, and now her only son, a destitute widow. Now, there's no welfare state in these days in this farming community. Men work the land, and when there are no more men, then there is no more income. There is no more security. The boy may have died, but this death has also killed a family, this widow. The reality of death is felt by everyone. And I think this is an important place for us to start tonight in the society in which we live. Because in many ways, our society looks to suppress death. We, we dress it up with, with soft, indirect language and outsource death to hospitals and hospices and, and so on. Now, some of you are, are very aware, have experienced it for yourself or in your family, perhaps, that these attempts from our society are, are just a veil. They're a facade. We know the truth is there is a grim reality of death, and there's no escaping it. But for some of us here, and I, I actually include myself in this as a guy in my 20s, I think we have a tendency to feel invincible, to feel immortal, that we, we can have our five-year plan knowing that we are going to be here in five years. Death is distant and non-important. That's just not the case. We need to hear that death is your greatest enemy. We were told during the pandemic that the, the virus does not discriminate. And they were right. Death does not discriminate. It does not sleep. It does not show compassion to a, to a young boy or a poor widow. Part of our attempts to, to cover it up is, is because we, we do not, as a society, have an answer for it. And this is worlds away from this, this scene here of an open coffin witnessed by everyone in the community. But here, into this scene, enters Jesus in verse 13. And he has compassion from his inner heart, the original text says. And he has compassion on this destitute widow in her hopeless situation. He, he reaches out, he touches the open coffin, which normally would be unheard of. It makes you culturally unclean to do such a thing. But what happens instead? Have a look. Instead, he declares with words of authority, young man, get up. 
And rather than the, the spread of death spreading to Jesus, his life extends to this boy. He imparts life. Death is overruled. It's undone. Now, for those of us who are, who are used to these stories of Jesus, this can wash over it. But do not let this wash over it. Death is reversed. This isn't done. This is death we're talking about that affects one in one of every person. The greatest miracle that we have seen recorded in Luke's gospel so far and the greatest miracle that Israel has seen since the prophets of old, of Elijah, of Elisha. And the crowds know it too. Have a look at verse 16. A great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. This act in a, a small village of probably about 200 people in Nain is a microcosm of what Jesus has come to do, of what his mandate is on earth. It is a statement miracle performed by him. God has heard the cries of his people who are still feeling the pain of exile and destitution and has come to release this beloved son of Israel. Jesus is the one who has come with power over death. And now we see the first response in verses 18 to 23. Because this is front page news. There is no getting away from this. The people understand the significance of this miracle. And this is what triggers John the Baptist's disciples to spread the news, to go and tell John now, we've met John right at the start of this gospel account. He was born around the same time as Jesus. He introduced him onto the public sphere in chapter 3. And at this point in time, he is being held in a Roman prison because of speaking against King Herod. Expectation of hope coming, Jesus' power over death, this is another on the, on the prophetic bingo card of the promised one to come. Death being reversed. Sat in a Roman prison. John, you'll, you'll, you'll never guess what. Jesus raised a boy from the dead. But what we then find, as we see in our passage... It's something that might take us by surprise. There's, there's doubt. Why is there doubt? These disciples of John come back with a question for Jesus from John. Now, now surely John would be the last person that we would expect a question like this. He's the one who introduced Jesus after all. Surely he knows who Jesus is. Now, it's not entirely clear what, what John's thinking here. Is, is he the one who's doubting who Jesus is? Or is he maybe trying to clarify something for his disciples to point them to Jesus? It's not entirely clear, but I don't think we need to worry too much. But simply put, there is doubt, and there is something for Jesus to clarify. Why is there doubt? 
It's not about what Jesus has done to this point. I think it's about what Jesus has not yet done. Now, there there are a number of events that were promised that uh, this chosen one, this, this Son of God would perform, but there's a number of things that have not yet been ticked off the bingo prophetic card. The prophetic outline of this Son of Man is, is not yet complete. Let's see what, what John said back in chapter, chapter 3. He said in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, One is coming more powerful than I, sorry, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. As amazing as these miracles have been that Jesus has performed, that were promised, there has not yet been an outpouring of the Spirit as was promised in Joel chapter 2, or yet the the fire and judgment on uh, Israel's enemies, as John described. And he's left with with doubt, with disappointment. This isn't what he expected. Jesus, are, are you the one? Because you're not quite what we expected. Now, I don't want us to write John off at this point. Let's not write him off too quickly. He preached about a one coming after him who would be the promised Messiah, the one who would would liberate the people and free them from slavery. And here he is now in a prison himself, suffering. But what does John do He goes back to the Scriptures. He goes back to the promises of the prophets. And he listens to the the report spreading around the region. That word report can be translated word, logos. He listens to what the word is. And with his doubt, he goes straight to Jesus. And Jesus, receiving this question lays out the evidence that we've seen over the last few chapters. The blind have been released from their darkness. The lame have been released from the prison of their own broken bodies. The leper has been released from their cultural exile. The deaf have been released from their silence. The dead, as we have just seen, have been released from the grave and the clutches of the evil one. And the poor have had the good news proclaimed to them. Release from the slavery of sin through repentance to God's chosen king who has come. That's what Jesus lays out for John. Hear and listen to the good news again, John. The words of promise from Isaiah, littered throughout Isaiah, of what he would come to do. The words being reported about the acts of Jesus. Be reminded and reassured by the evidence. 
the year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee year, the year of release that Jesus announced to all that he was the fulfillment of back in chapter 4. That great hope of Isaiah 61 is coming through Jesus. Expect no one else. I am the one who is to come and has now come. Do not be offended or ashamed of me, John. Do not let your doubt cause you to stumble on account of me. And this is the same appeal to us who are trusting in Christ. We might know in our heads the, the promises of God, but our, our current circumstances can blind us and cause us to question. Hardships are expected in this life, and we, we don't yet see the physical reality of the freedom that Christ willfully bring in the new kingdom. And we are prone to, to forget and grow weary in our suffering. Questions form in our mind, is God good? Will God keep his promises? Did Jesus really leave me justified and forgiven? Do I, do I dare to hope in him? But crucially, where do we go with our doubts, temptations, frustrations, and questions? We, like John, are to be driven back to the words. Hear the reminder again from chapter 7 in Luke. Jesus has shown his release, his liberty. Revisit his word and his goodness. We have even more revelation than John did. Do not let your doubts cause you to stumble. Here is the one, Charlotte Chapel, who has the power to release the grip on judgment of death. And as scary and as real as death is, and it is, Jesus is the one who has come with power over death. Do not place your hope in another. So that's evidence number one, the curse of death being undone. But Luke doesn't just leave it there. Evidence number two, I'll send my messenger ahead of you in verses 24 to 35. In case anyone in the crowds has any doubts, Jesus cites John as his next piece of evidence in verses 24 to 26. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out to, in, to the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? A flimsy guy? If not, what did you go out to see? A man in fine clothes. Was this an impressive man? No. They are in their luxury, in their palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, more than a prophet. There is no doubt among the crowd who John was. John was a man of conviction, preaching a message of repentance. He was not dressed as a man of the high establishment. 
In Matthew's account, he tells us that John was dressed in camel hair and a leather belt. He had essentially the fancy dress outfit of Elijah, the great prophet. There's no doubting who John was. Jesus confirms John as a prophet, but more than a prophet. What does he mean there? He's talking about a bridging prophet, a messenger. He cites in verse 27, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is the, the last book, the last prophetic book of the Old Testament, who was promising the coming of this uh, sent one, this coming one. But there was one going to come before him. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John is this one. John is this one who was promised before the coming Lord. Now, why is, is, is Jesus bigging up John so much here? Is he, is he trying to reestablish his confidence or his credibility after having to embarrassingly ask Jesus, are you the one? I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. Rather, Jesus is saying that there is, uh, he is, Jesus is not just another prophet in a long line of prophets. He doesn't just perform a miracle like former prophets have performed. His coming was introduced. It was prepared by John. If John is who Scripture says he is, then Jesus is who Scripture says He is. By confirming John the Baptist, Jesus is therefore confirming who He is, the one, the one that was to come after the messenger whom John prepared the way for. He is the Lord. He goes on to say that John is the greatest of all born of flesh, yet all born of the kingdom are greater than him. What, what does Jesus mean here? Well, as the Lord, Jesus is bringing something new with the kingdom of God. He's bringing a new covenant. This is not just a simple continuation of the old prophets. There is something new coming, something radical coming. This is why the liberation that Jesus will bring will be greater than mere freedom out of some sort of physical oppression. It's a liberation that restores all of creation to the way things always were meant to be. And this is what his miracles are showing, are pointing to. This is not just one act of love from Jesus, but he is changing the entire system. Life, entirety of life is restored as part of the kingdom of God. And this was not, it was never possible under the old covenant, the old regime. They could never deliver themselves from the, the release they deeply desired. The least in the kingdom of God, Jesus says, born of the Spirit, will be greater than even the last great prophet of the old kingdom. John knows who, what his role is and who he was bridging to. He was a bridge between the old and the new. He points to the greater one ahead of him. The long-awaited promised one from Malachi, King Jesus. Jesus is the one who has come 
with his messenger. Now, after this, this second piece of evidence, there is again a response from the crowds. So here it is, the evidence before the people, acts of the new kingdom, and the messenger introducing the king and his new kingdom. And the crowd have a choice to make. And we'll be asking the question that John, John's disciples were asking, are you Jesus? Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Can I put my trust in you? Can I place my hope in you? Because either he is the deliverer or he's not. Which means for the crowd and those in the crowd, there are two responses. Accept the evidence or dismiss it. Now we see this, this played out with Luke's observance of the, the sinners and tax collectors compared with the Pharisees and the, the experts in the law, the law interpreters. Some justify Jesus as they justify John. Some refuse in silent rejection as they rejected John. The Pharisees were, were looking for God's king too. Let's not discount that. But they had no time for this, this talk of repentance from Jesus or John. In their minds, they were the ones who were, who were trying to tidy up Israel, were trying to bring about repentance in the people so that God's king might come. Why would they need to repent? Well, Jesus tells uh, what I think is probably something like a, a first century nursery rhyme to make his point in verse 32. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. What's he saying? We told you uh, the good news of the gospel, a happy tune, and you would not repent. We told you that the warning of the condemnation under the law, the dirge, a, a funeral lament, but you would not repent. Whether it was a message coming from an old covenant Nazarite like John the Baptist, fasting and abstaining from wine and alcohol, or Jesus coming, showing the abundance of the kingdom of God, feasting with tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees reject both of them. If you reject the messenger, if you reject John the Baptist, you'll reject the coming one. And this has implications for us too, because we face the same call to repentance as when John and Jesus were preaching about it. Now, I'm not here to, to say, simply lay out some neat evidence for you to try and entertain you or engage you for 30 minutes or so. I'm not here to, to try and justify myself that I am somehow on the right side of history by making sure my arguments have no loose ends and everything is tied up nicely like this is some sort of debating competition. I am here to, to beg and plead with you as Jesus and John beg and plead under the authority of Almighty God for your very soul 
And I beg and plead by any means necessary with the tools God's Word graciously provides. Now, whether it is by the the beautiful attraction of what Jesus is bringing, what Jesus is announcing as part of His kingdom, of what He displays, lifting up the wounded and the oppressed, releasing the captives and the slaves, restoring light to the blind and the dead, doing for you what you cannot do and will never do in your own strength and perhaps have long given up hope for, May you repent at the feet of Jesus, the compassionate King. Or whether by the reverent fear of the judgment both John and Jesus have warned of. A terminal where where darkness is inescapable, where pain cripples, all pleasures cease, exile is permanent, death everlasting. May a fear of that judgment, that coming judgment, may you repent at the feet of Jesus, that just judge. Whatever the methods, as Jesus and John have proclaimed the good news, may you repent and hear the good news tonight. The easy option for you, like the Pharisees, to sit in silent rejection, in comfort. You might walk out this building tonight and go about your life rejecting this gospel of Jesus and John, but it would be cruel of me to let you go without a reminder of the punishment that awaits. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff in unquenchable fire. John was asking why judgment hadn't arrived yet. And is it not an incredible mercy that it hasn't yet? That you sitting here, me standing here 2,000 years later, that God has not brought about his judgment yet, that there might still be those who are saved through the gospel. During his first earthly visit, Jesus warned of the coming judgment, as he warned the Pharisees here. But he also bore the wrath of that judgment for his people, God's true repentant children, by dying for their their sins on the cross. And by repenting tonight, by submitting to Jesus as the promised one who has come, you can enjoy both a release from that judgment but also enjoy the blessings of the kingdom which Jesus himself has displayed in part now and will fully be on display when Jesus returns again. Let me ask you, all of you, whether you would call yourself a Christian or not, who does Jesus appear to be based on tonight's evidence? The life-bringing Savior? Let me ask you another question. Who do you believe? Who do you believe Jesus to be? Because if those two answers are the same, if they match, you can face this week equipped with the promises of that Savior. 
and not even a, a, a cell in prison on account of your faith, not even death can keep you from inheriting a place in the kingdom of God, which the Savior has gone to prepare for you. He will not fail you. Jesus is not a fake ferry launch. He is not dog food when you expect an iPhone. You can face every moment of low-level hostility in your office. You can face every moment of temptation for anger against your children, which Satan puts before you. You can face every moment of grief when our health fails us. You can face them trusting in his goodness and his gospel to restore all things. Let me pray. They were all filled with awe and praise God. A great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. We don't deserve it. And yet you have come. You have delayed judgment so that we might be brought into the kingdom of the Son. Lord, would we assess this evidence presented by Luke tonight? Would we have certainty of the things that have been taught? Would we know both who Jesus is and trust him in this week ahead? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Oh,